BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Step into a world where ancient wisdom meets modern mysticism. Introducing the Gnostic Tarot, a powerful fusion of esoteric art and Gnostic themes designed for those who seek the ultimate Gnosis. This mesmerizing deck, rich in symbolism, draws from the profound teachings of Gnosticism, serving as an ideal companion for meditation, reflection, and the exploration of spiritual realms. Whether you are a seasoned tarot enthusiast or new to the practice, the Gnostic Tarot caters to all, offering a portal to ancient wisdom and a tool for uncovering the hidden truths in your mystical journey. Unveil the mysteries, embrace the wisdom. The Gnostic Tarot is a timeless companion for your spiritual odyssey. Take a journey with Gnostic luminaries and learn their stories in a visually stunning manner. From Sophia to the Gnostic Christ, their journey is your self-discovery. Choose from the basic deck or the deluxe version, which includes a beautifully crafted journey book and a magnetic storage box, ensuring that your Gnostic Tarot remains a treasured companion on your spiritual quest. The Gnostic Tarot is an original and collaborative effort between Miguel Connor Veyon by Gnostic Radio and Matthew Schmitz of Altrusian Grace Media. Visit our website to embark on your journey today. Syncrasis Publishing, where ancient wisdom and modern mysticism converge. Welcome everybody to Aeon Bite. I hope everybody is having a good early year and yet a great holiday season. For those of you on video right now, you just saw a little promo for the brand new Gnostic Tarot that is out as we speak. Information on the show notes and it is doing very well even though we just released it about 10 days ago. So go on a journey with all the Gnostic characters and uh, find new ways to really uh, supercharge your tarot divination or archetypal introspection. Other than that, yeah, good to see everybody here on YouTube Live. We are live on Rockfin. I just got a thing, a little glitch on Rumble, but that's okay. I will upload the video. And we got a great show today. My name is Miguel Connor. I am still your pompadus of Gnosis for the remaining 2024. And it's always a pleasure to have Dr. David Litwa. David, thank you very much for coming on the show once again. Thank you, gentlemen. <clears throat> it's good to be here. I apologize. Uh, my throat's a bit scratchy because I'm getting over a cold, but uh, happy to be here. Happy to join you. Yeah, that time of the year. I had a few bouts of those, but uh, yeah, that's that's us in our little uh, meat sacks, our material forms that house the divine spark. <laughs> and with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how is your meat sack incarnation doing? Oh, it's sacking along. Um, and uh, I'm at a meeting, so <laughs> meat sack. <laughs> Flocks of meat sacks flying through the air. There you go. Well, awesome. Well, uh, seeing people already going into the chat room, as always, if you have any questions for David, please super chat them so we can separate them and get to you in a timely and fair way. Tonight, we will be discussing David's book, The Nascenes, Exploring an Early Christian Identity, and a book I really enjoyed. Uh, again, as I had the sniffles last weekend, it was just a great read. 
to uh, to sit around and uh, really bask into this great wisdom of the ancients. So, David, tell us uh, how you came how you came to write this book. Well, first of all, I appreciate you having me on to spread the word. Um, not everybody knows the Atanasins, but I think we all should make an effort. They were, I mean, in terms of the popular dimension, you know, it's a cult about gnosis, sex, and snakes. And, you know, I just don't know who is not interested in that sort of stuff. Now, as is my duty as a historian, I'm here to tell you, you know, what we can and cannot know about this group. In 2016, I released my translation of The Refutation of All Heresies. And this is a book by an anonymous Christian writer. And it is our sole source for the Nascenes because this writer reproduced what is usually called the Nascene Sermon, or as I just call it, the Nascene Discourse. And so it was, in a sense, inevitable that from this general study, I would focus with laser attention on this particular group. And since I noticed that in English, there really wasn't a good, solid scholarly monograph that was also comprehensible and accessible to the average Joe or Jane, I decided to take the opportunity. Yeah, and I'm glad uh, you did. Yeah, you said what uh, snakes, sex, and gnosis. I was thinking of Conan the Barbarian in Tulsa Doom, but it's not as exciting as that, David, is it? Uh, <laughs> you don't have uh, Darth Vader and the you know as the preacher and all this wonderful and Arnold Schwarzenegger storming up the stairs to kill him and all that. <laughs> <laughs> but it still has well that's the key too is that maybe you can start to explain uh, the name nasin because uh, it's got it, it's sometimes confusing because again nasin's means snake i mean your book has a snake my promo has a snake but are there really snakes with the nasins it's kind of a kind of a paradox or a i don't know it's odd <laughs> Right, yeah. So agnostics are associated with snakes, and that's definitely the case. And na'as is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew nachash, which does mean snake, and there's no doubt about that. So the question then is, who's calling them the na'asins? Are they calling themselves that? And what is the actual role of snakes? Interestingly enough, I mean, there is certainly material on snakes, but it's not overwhelming what the Nassim author says, as I'd like to call him the Nassim preacher, whom I consider to be a, a real Gnostic of, of late antique Alexandria. He says that, yeah, there are serpent symbols in every temple under heaven. And he seems in his own context to be specifically referring to Agathos Daimon. And Agathos Daimon was one of these very, very popular civic deities in Alexandria. And I've got some videos on him on the Patreon. Agathos Daimon is usually manifest as a snake and his name means the good spirit and you can go to alexandria today underground and still see images of this good spirit guarding the tombs of the dead he was the giver of good things and the alexandrians had images of him both in their homes in their marketplaces and guarding their temples and the serpentine image, which is, of course, also a phallic image, um, is very prevalent in temples. And the point for the Nasin preacher is to say that the snake really is a symbol of Jesus. And the snake really is the true recipient of worship. 
sometimes or most often unknowingly by people who go and visit these temples. The imagery is unavoidable. The meaning is overpowering. No, makes sense. And uh, other than that, um, I'm trying to think. There is the argument, and I know you address this in your book, that April DeConnick makes in the Gnostic New Age, that uh, in the Nessene cosmology, there's the great moisture, you know, the primordial essence or consciousness. And that can possibly, she draws parallels to the Egyptian idea of a tomb, that there's a snake sort of half asleep in the moisture. What do you think of that? I don't buy that. It just simply because there's just no evidence in the surviving sermon. Um, Now, that being said, I don't at all deny that this author knew a good bit of Egyptian mythology and that he was extremely familiar with his own native Alexandrian cultural rites and that he knew the significance of snakes. And for both Egyptians and Greeks, snakes weren't just one thing. They weren't just symbols of wisdom. They were symbols of many things. And so I, the only caution I would put here for your, your listeners and your viewers is, is look at the multiple meanings of snakes, both in, in Greco-Roman antiquity and among the Egyptians, and see if you can make connections. But I want to, I just want to urge people, um, you know, the Nasin sermon, I've made it available in a new translation and a reconstruction in the book. Go read it. Um, read it in full. And let me know what you think. Um, I mean, I'm happy to be corrected, but I want to follow and I want to be controlled by that text itself because the overwhelming temptation, I think, of many, we, we get duly excited about snakes and about other kinds of mythology, and we start then kind of putting the Nassim sermon through the meat grinder of uh, these other frameworks and mythologies. And what I've tried to do in the book is to let the the sermon be the controlling factor and only base myself on the direct evidence of the text, which is all that we have. And I assure everyone here in this virtual room, um, you will enter into a great cathedral of overwhelming and powerful imagery that will flood your senses and amaze you at every turn. The author of this text, I mean, such a slender line of transmission that we got it. His mind is like a great cave and there's a thousand echoes going off. And doubtless when you read this text, you will also hear a thousand or 10,000 echoes. And I'm merely as a historian, just opening the text, maybe holding your hand, but you know, you're going to be amazed, as the preacher himself says, by the associations and connections that are made here. It's quite an odyssey. Before we get into a summary of it, uh, so we can say, as you've been mentioning, David, the Nessenes, likely the preacher came from Alexandria, somewhere in Egypt. You date them probably what end of the second century, early third century. So yep. that right there. And then the Nassines never call themselves Nassines, but doesn't the refutator say they call themselves Gnostics or does he call them Gnostics? That's right. Yeah. The Nassines are very important because unlike the Sethians, um, whom David Brackey and others call Gnostics with a capital G, um, we don't have any actual evidence of them doing that, but for the Nasenes, they do call themselves Gnostics. That's that's their name for themselves, um, along with the Carpocratians. Um, so that's very significant. That that is what they called themselves. But their chief name for themselves, and I, I like to always hammer this home for people because it's so easy to forget this. Their chief name for themselves is. Christians. In fact, as the preacher says, hey, mis 
Mani Christiani, we are the only Christians. Mm. So that's what, how he called himself. Yeah, at the same time, you say he's an exclusivist, but a universalist and cosmopolitan. So he, like you said, he's got a lot of things going on in his head or her head or whoever this person was, right? <laughs> yeah, that's the interesting tension. Um, you've got the preacher who very well could be female. Um, we don't know, but you've got the preacher referring to salvation in exclusivist terms, saying that only a few people are going to get it. But on the other hand, he's this wild-eyed universalist who's saying that the truth is under every rock. You turn around and there's a symbol there that is meant for you. And that symbol, it doesn't matter which religion or culture or nation you grew up in, there's a divine symbol system designed to get you toward the truth. And he will literally use anything and everything. You know, it, if he was alive today, I mean, I'm sure he would be using um, everything from sports to Disneyland to superheroes the New York Times. Yeah, I, I mean, literally, he, he, he was able to make connections in his own time and culture that no other Christian made and, and are unprecedented for any other thinker in antiquity. I mean, he's the only thinker, and we'll get to this, he's the only thinker who said that Addis really is Jesus. And that Jesus really is Addis, who is also Hermes. And, and you know, he, he, he actually sits down and proves it to you by making the connections. And he connects them all back to Agathos Daimon and the snake. And he says they are all symbols of the same thing. And the symbols that you see daily, whether you're walking on the street or you're in a temple, or you're just going to get a glass of water. There are signs and symbols in this world that are leading you toward truth. And the truth is one. And he's going to lead you to it. Well, oh, that's yeah. not necessarily um, contradictory to the fact that he thinks his movement is exclusive, right? Because he could say that only our movement can see all these symbols or interpret them. And if you say this means this and we disagree, then then you're wrong, right? Couldn't that be it? Well, yeah, no, there's, I'm not saying there's any contradiction at all. And in fact, um, this this works quite well with him. He's he's an exclusiveness in terms of uh, he's an exclusivist in terms of gnosis. Yeah, uh, and he says that his his group alone has the gnosis, which is a classic gnostic claim. But the gnosis really is available to all, and it, it's not. There's no class system preventing you from getting it. But it just turns out that only a very small group has it. So, yes. And also, uh, wasn't Addis um, a eunuch? Didn't he castrate himself? Is he saying that Jesus castrated himself? Yeah, so this is a very interesting debated point. Um, and it's one of those points where I probably am I'm going to defer and to disappoint some people. Uh, <laughs> um, this author talks a lot about cutting the penis off. And I have called him phallocentric in the sense that, not in the sense that he is, you know, a, a rabid masculine or masculinist ideology, androcentric, as, you know, SOB, but in the sense that he is always thinking about phalloi, that is penises. And he's, he's, He's very, very into penis imagery as a spiritual sign of what he calls spiritual maleness. And this is why he is so, he's able, this is his tool to get so much riches out of the Addison Sibley cult, which is, as you know, all based on the tragic drama of a young shepherd boy who, in a fit of madness, cut off his own penis and testicles. And 
the Nasim preacher loves this story and says that Addis, that's Jesus, and everyone needs to engage in this act of spiritual eunuchism. Everyone needs to rip off their male part and let that ascend to heaven. And when some readers hear this, um, they think, well, is he speaking literally or is he is he just speaking on a spiritual plane or or what's going on here? Did he actually uh, castrate himself? And this is what the refutator says. He, he says, in order to make fun of the Nasim preacher, that the preacher is so committed to the ideology of no marriage and no sex on earth that he resembles a castrated priest of Sibylle. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that he was one, right? So this is a classic, this is a classic heresiological insult. What we know of the Nasim preacher is that he is Platonist to the core. And so he's not primarily focused on bodies. He's primarily focused on minds and spirits. And just like so many Platonists in antiquity and so many Gnostics in antiquity, they lived in this allegorical universe where maleness and the purification of maleness, and we find this in the Gnostic Gospels all the time, just means separating yourself from your passions and the body, because earth and violent emotions are unfortunately associated with femaleness in antiquity very, very consistently. And maleness is is associated with spirituality independent of all uh, flesh. I won't say all body, but all flesh and all the raging emotions of grief, anger, greed, and so on. So this author is demanding spiritual eunuchism, and that's a requirement for entering the church. But I do not actually think that he had the scalpel in his hand and was knocking off men's dicks in order to get people in. Yeah, and as you and as you say, David, in their cosmology, the supreme archetypal being is we call him the son of human, but it's a son of man, and it's sort of again this uh, Plato idea of androgyny. We want to get rid of our animal sides and just be unified as the son of human is and the shape of Christ. That's right. Yeah, he's he's a classic Platonist in that respect that he, he believes that divine is androgynous, but mm-hmm. enragingly, he keeps referring to the divine as male. But all that means on all that means on the allegorical level is that the divine is pure mind. And what we call male and female on the let's say the the noetic level has nothing to do with dicks and vaginas. I'm sorry to be so brutish here, but Mm -hmm. um, it it has to, maleness and femaleness is a spiritual quality for this author. And the fact that, you know, the gender wars um, are caused by the fact that we all associate maleness and females with bodies and body parts. Mm -hmm. And as a Platonist, this author thinks that that's the greatest and most fundamental mistake you can mean you can make femaleness is spirit maleness is spirit and we're getting back to the androgynous son of the human and the way we do that is by as he says enragingly and almost as a contradiction but not really a contradiction separate your maleness from your femaleness below so that you can become androgynous above yeah, I like how in one part, David, you say that if we can find the central theme of the preacher, it's this, God is human, and the human, when fully understood, is God. I love it. It's a very pithy, straight to the straight to the mark. And it reminds me of when I interviewed Stephen Davis, and he appears in Voices of Gnosticism, he said the same thing about the secret book of John. It's a story of how God became human, and if we reverse the process, you know, the way of ascent is the way of descent. We can become God again. So that idea was in the air with these groups. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I, on my Patreon, I've got an episode called The God, Human, and Human Gods. And I've also got an academic article on that, um, which I can share with people. Um, it's it's called The God, Human, and Human Gods. And this is a central Gnostic belief. If if you're thinking of a core Gnostic theology, at least for an, antiquity, is that God is human with the capital H. Now, you might have various tiers of the Godhead, but at least one of the tiers, one of the upper tiers, is you have a Macanthropos, you know, and, and, you know, this is in Judaism as well and in Jewish mysticism as well. It's probably where it ultimately comes from. But the incarnation, you know, Christians, hey, we just celebrated Christmas and, you know, for, for part of the world, Christmas is coming up on January 6th. And that they all get all excited about the incarnation, whereas the Gnostics, um, the Gnostics thought that the incarnation was just so logical. I mean, it's the natural form of God. It's like God returning uh, or, or God manifesting God's self in the image of what she, of which he already is or she already is the archetype. So in a sense, the, the incarnation is the most banal of all divine acts. It is God's own natural, God's own natural appearance. And, but on the other hand, it, 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 you know, that's not to deny that it's a wondrous, wondrous miracle. And, you know, we should give gifts to each other, you know, if not for that reason, then, you know, just to get drunk when it's really dark out. But, <laughs> you know, this is important, you know, um, and, 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 and not only, not only the Nassines, but the Valentinians and the Scythians, they are all agreed on the God human. And they all are going back to the New Testament and they're saying, hey, look, look at how many times Jesus refers himself to the son of the human, he refers to himself as the son of the human. And that's, I, I say that in that awkward way, because that's what the Greek says. It's hachuias to anthropu, which, which isn't son of man, but it's the son of the human. It's always the human. And that human can only refer to a superior deity. So Jesus is constantly referring to the human in the sky who happens to be his father. So if if he's the son of the human, then there is a human, the human up there who is God. Beautifully said, and I love it. And in their cosmology, what exactly happens uh, for the audience? Where's the Where's the high drama, the son of human or the son of man? He falls, and there's also a version of Yaldabaoth. Uh, I always forget his name. Isaldius. Uh, maybe tell the audience a little bit about the, the Nessene Hyde cosmic drama. Well, you know, some people talk about the Gnostic myth. I never, I never like to talk about the Gnostic myth. I always like to let each text speak for itself you know because they're not they have general themes in in common but they're not all the same so the nasins are going to have their own particular take on reality and you get a lot of the nasin uh theology from the nasin psalm and i've got that i think i've got that on just for free on youtube the nasin psalm is one of these Probably, I, I mean, I would say one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautiful of all Gnostic prayers, which were put to music. Um, we've lost the music, but we've got the prayer. And it's a story of the soul wandering as a deer and Jesus having then a conversation with his father and asking him sort of like if you've ever read john milton's paradise lost you know the father and the son they have this conversation there um much like god and abraham you know before sodom and gomorrah and they're like oh all these people are going to die why don't you send me and i'll go down and and jesus repeatedly says i'll go down i'll i'll fight off every demon i'll i'll break every chain i will show every seal i will show the path of gnosis and you know i'm paraphrasing but it's, it's very powerful and i would love to hear the music to it but yes the the theology is basically binitarian in the sense that there's a human and there's a son of the human and they are ontologically one so there's um 
you know, the homoousios applies here, consubstantiality applies here. Uh, it's not a trinity. The Nasins um, are, are binitarians, and they think that the, the sun manifestation of deity, you know, comes into the world in various manifestations. And not just Jesus, but as Addis and as Osiris and as um, uh, Adonis. And the symbols are all tracked back to this child of the human, as I like to call him. And of course, he also appeared in Jesus, the son of Mariam. Mm -hmm. But the symbols are all, you know, going back to the to the same thing. And his view of reality is that there was a primitive religion of humankind that humankind in the early days, we were all worshipers of Jesus and we worshiped him in the form of the snake. And that's why in temples today, that is speaking from the preacher's perspective, that's why in temples today, these snake serpentine phallic images survive in every temple. Um, because, but, you know, we've forgotten the original religion of Jesus and as a serpent, as a serpent cult. But at every moment, we are able to realize the truth and to get back to our divine origins. I'm really not doing justice to this. I'm sorry. You read no, the book. No, you are. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I read the book, so of course I'm, I'm getting it because it's such a wonderful journey and you really get us uh, into the mind and the heart of the preacher and the beautiful poetry and what a journey he takes us i think of some like ancient travel blogger because you're going to Phrygia and going here and he's tying in the symbols and he's bringing in the gospel of thomas and homer and the pauline letters and he's talking about osiris it's like like you said you're on like a this amazing ride through history and the cosmos it just uh it just doesn't end and it's good that you elise and the refutator are there to sort of okay this is what's going on because you could get so lost in things but would you say that uh again bringing in april that a lot of this the the work is a, a ritual in itself to meet God, or what's the summary you would say of what the preacher is trying to do? Because, I mean, obviously, like like you say, David, in ancient times, everything had to be had to be theatrical. You talk about how it's likely the preacher knew of theatrics and how to market this stuff. He wasn't like in some Alexandrian Starbucks just reading and everything. You know, you had to sell this stuff and make it into a ritual and get people in the right frame of mind. So what do you think of the whole summary or the text itself and what it's trying to do? Well, this guy or this gal lived in the real Alexandria and the real Alexandria. And you know, you and I want to live there, too, if we had a choice. <laughs> <laughs> At, at the height of its spiritual beauty and majesty, Alexandria of the late second century, a hundred years before the Christians even really became close to 25% of the population, which is really a fourth century phenomenon. This guy was a Christian in a world dominated by Hellenic and Egyptian cults. And he instead of crossing his fingers and spitting and um, saying that all the temples were houses of demons, he opened up his arms and said, I welcome every pagan symbol. I can understand you in terms of Jesus, which is enraging to some, you know, because you want to say, can't you just outgrow Jesus? But this is <laughs> what this is what he does. And I would say well, all that we have, Miguel, is a is a sermon. But the Nazim preacher was a Christian. And this is one of the texts where, and I, I don't think this of every text, 
But this is one of the texts that reading and rereading, I am more and more convinced that we can reconstruct what his rituals looked like. Mm. And it's because he is so emphatic that he's got two things which other Christians don't have. But the form of the ritual is the same. The form of the ritual is a baptism and anointing. But the, but the preacher says that he has water in which people are washed that is unspeakable. And he has ointment, which is also unspeakable. And so he's naming his two primary sacraments. It's a sacrament of water purification, and it's a sacrament of anointing with some sort of oil or perfume. And those are the things that make you a Christian. In fact, in that very passage, which I quoted, Hemis Mani Christiani, he says, we are the only Christians because we are the only ones anointed, which is kriyamani, mm -hmm. with the true ointment. Now, not everyone is familiar with with anointing rituals, these do still survive in some churches today, but they were very popular in second and third century Alexandria in Egypt and Syria. And usually the anointing with oil would represent some kind of power of the spirit, the light power of the spirit. And you would get this immediately after being washed. And in addition, the Nasin preacher talked about a cup, which also um, almost, you know, certainly refers to a type of Eucharist ceremony. And he associates the cup, interestingly, with divination practices, that the cup gives you cognitive, a cognitive boost, a cognitive, uh, a clairvoyance, and a power to see the truth which you have not seen before. So those are the three sacraments, baptism, anointing, and the Eucharist. That sounds so ordinary, but what the, what the preacher has done is he's modified those rituals in very important ways to say that his form of the ritual is the only form which can transform you in body and mind and cognitively restructure you so that you become a true knower and a true Christian. Classic, classic move, but he does it well. But at, the same, you know, at the same time, uh, well, you also say that the baptism, we don't know what baptism is. I mean, it's still mysterious. Like you talk about the paraphrase of Shem you mentioned, using it's against regular baptism and there might be another text like the trimorphic predanoia the baptism happens in another heaven so we still don't know if they're using water or evan says if they're using drugs we just don't know what the goodies are yeah it's not like the didache if you're familiar with that text where it's a manual like a the sort of the methodist book of <laughs> discipline you know we don't have that we just have his references to it. But um, yeah, on the use of entheogens, that's often where people go. And I often say to people, I am totally open to that. Just show me, you know, beyond speculation where that might be. Of course, there might have been something in the cup, but all that he says is, is he associates it with divination and clairvoyance. So was there more than wine in the cup? I don't know. Maybe, uh, but but again, that that's where the historian, you know, just that's, says, yeah. "Here's what he says, folks." I mean, take it where you will. <laughs> and the and the what is the conclusion of the the ritual? Is it some sort of like um, Zoroastrianos, where you take an astral flight and meet the son of human? You become uh individuated down here on earth what do you think was the culmination of each of these rituals 
I'm not actually, I'm not actually sure. Um, and I'm not sure that we could reconstruct that from the, from the sermon. He, he constantly is using imagery of heavenly flight, escape from Egypt, is symbols of transcendence. And it's clear that as a Platonist, as a Christian Platonist, his ultimate vision of reality is you're not flesh, you're a divine mind, you're made of light. Anything that you associate with human emotions or even human personality, that's not you. Stop fooling yourselves. It doesn't matter if you personally survive. All that matters is that that male power in you is detached. That is that pure mind, that pure spirit, and is brought home. And he doesn't say that that happens proleptically in the ritual. Um, but I think ethics here is just as important as ritual, that the ethical practices and the Nassim preacher is dead on committed to celibacy. This is is the great thing, you know, that's going to make modern people cringe, you know. Oh, God, you know. Um, but he is dead on celibacy. And I think actually it's his radical ascetic ethics that are just as perhaps even more important than these more, um, you know, we might say, these more things that look like special rights. Um, these ethics and detaching yourselves from the flesh and its passions, which is the goal of ethics for a Platonist, is the way that you finally attain that heavenly state of transcendence. And I don't think that that happens at a particular time. I think that can happen at any time for this preacher. Yeah, well, this is the way as the Mandalorian would say. This Mandalorian would say <laughs> that too. I do like uh, James True, who's been a, a friend and a speaker. Voluntary waterboarding in the river gives a practitioner a near-death experience. That's something I've been speculating with. Obviously, like you said, David, we don't have proof in Christianity and other religions. If you watch Game of Thrones, that was one of the rituals. Where, But it's fun to think of John the Baptist, Jesus, oh, I want to be baptized. And he gets up until Jesus has like a mystical experience because he has no oxygen to his brain. But just, specu just speculating here. But speaking of speculation, don't some scholars think that the Nassines were some sort of... Uh, uh, you talk about celibacy, but saying that there were actually some sort of uh, sex cult, gay sex cult, you know? Yeah, so I go in depth in this um, because um, a fellow colleague of mine, uh, Jonathan Kahana Bloom, makes this argument that the Nassins are actually homoerotic mm -hmm. and... I think they're homoerotic too, but he then goes on and says that they're actually engaged in homosexual behaviors. Um, and there has also been theories that it was an all male fraternity because, you know, it doesn't actually mention um, females in the group, although. I don't think that's plausible because he mentions lots of female heroes like Mariam and heroes, feminine heroes from the, the Hebrew Bible. Um, I think that, you know, it's very hard for modern people to really grasp Platonism because Platonism, I think, is no longer cool. You know, it's, it's much cooler to be to say in our modern context, we need to be talking about embodiment. We need to be embracing the body as our true self and knowing the body and loving the body and you know melting into the body. And we love the body. And I just, you know, this is one of the things that as a historian, um, I just, uh, kind of scratch my head over because the Platonists are definitely not saying that. But interestingly, you know, it's it's like you're between a rock and a hard place because on the one hand, you want to say 
Platonists, they don't hate the body, right? They don't. They just don't care. They, I mean, they just do not care because it's not you. And it would take too much energy to hate it. It would be too stupid and take up too much of your time to develop hatred for the body. But I think that what's going on, so this is sort of the, like the political and ideological things going on in the background. Mm. But for me, and you know, I, your, your listeners and your viewers, feel free to disagree with me, you know, join me on Patreon. I'm happy to talk to you about it. My sense of it is the Nasin is the Nasin preacher is a hard core. And that means that he is absolutely against sex as part of his spirituality. And that doesn't matter if it's male female or male male or female female. The only he doesn't reject sex, but but he he spiritualizes it. He says that there is an unfading pleasure. And I think that's a sexual and homoerotic pleasure. But it's completely platonic in the sense that it's the same pleasure that is experienced between the human and the son of the human. And in a sense, they are having sex eternally. And if you're androgynous, you're like in an eternal state of having sex with yourself. You know, I mean, think about it. Like, it, you know, penis is always in the vagina. It's permanently attached. Never so, leave the house. <laughs> you, never, you never leave the house. You're, 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 you're there always. But that's but I, I would insist that for the Nasin preacher, he's constantly harping on this idea of separate maleness from the femaleness here below, right? And I think for the Nasin preacher, it, it's equally problematic for a male to have sex with a male as a male to have sex with a woman, because from a Platonist perspective, that's as Plato said in in the Phaedo. It's nailing your mind to your passions. Mm. It's, it's giving your spirit one more um, nail to rivet you to your emotions and your, your, your sexual drives. When in fact, the only reason we have sex is because of death. And it's just the, the flesh's way of reproducing itself. And if you were in a world without death, you would never give one thought toward actual physical intercourse because that would just seem to you the most irrelevant thing in the world. But at the same time, you are androgynous because real maleness and real femaleness is a spirit or noetic thing. And so that's why I disagree with Kahana Bloom. But again, I, again, I, I open it up for further discussion. I happen to talk about it further. <laughs> no, no, this is great. I love it. Yeah, we've got da uh, Dr. David Litwa. If you have any super chats, you want to ask questions about these uh, fascinating topics. Yeah, those ancients knew how to party and how to think. We think we're wild today in the 21st century. They had us beat in every way, shape, or form. <laughs> <laughs> but they did believe in reincarnation. That's probably something you say. Even though he doesn't explicitly say it, he, that's probably... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm convinced of that. Yeah, I'm convinced of that. But, you know, in, in Alexandria, that's actually the standard Christian position. Mm -hmm. um, Vasilides, Carpocrates, and I've got a book on Carpocrates, and the Nasins, they're all pro full-on transmigration that's just the way of that god works in the world the system in, in in which we are it's the gymnasium of virtue mm. and but that's totally banal to them whereas if you're in rome or you're in antioch or in gaul um christians you know start spitting at you uh, when you <laughs> not andrea not in alexandria no, no, that's that's where all the cool kids hang out. Uh, Vance, uh, any super chat or question from yourself? Yeah, we do have a super chat, and I got some questions. Uh, we'll uh, we'll take uh, Anon's uh, question first. He says some sources state that the there. etymology of the word Vatican is divining serpent. 
other sources state that this is a misinterpretation of Latin roots. Does uh, do you, David, have a perspective uh, opinion on this? Uh, you know, I really, I really don't. Um, I mean, the Vatican is named after the the Vatican Hill, of course, um, and I don't myself know, or I haven't looked up. Uh, and there's special dictionaries that you can use called etymological dictionaries. And you can get these and it will tell you what the root of the meaning, what the root of the, of the word is. And I just don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not, I've not come across that, but that's, you know, publicly accessible. Um, if, if um, your viewers just want to search for, go to an academic library and search for Greek etymological dictionary or Latin etymological dictionary. Now the problem with et etymology is um, you know, all of our normal words that we use also have etymologies, but that's not, we don't, you know, we're not thinking in terms of etymologies when we're using a word, you know? So the question is, you know, what, what does a word mean or sound like? Um, well, you know, did they go back to the etymology or did they not go back to the etymology? Was that important for them? Interestingly enough, for the Nasin preacher, he doesn't really use, um, or sorry, he does use a lot of etymological exegesis, what I'd like to call. That is, he's interested in the, in the root meaning of terms. Um, but that sounded, that must have sounded very weird even to his audience because, you know, they just didn't think in terms of, of etymolo etymology. Like if I use the word automobile, it comes from auto, which is a Greek prefix meaning self, and mobile, which is a Latin um, suffix having to do with motion. So it's a self-motion thing, literally. But when I refer to automobiles, that's really not what you're thinking. But yes, that's where the word does derive. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I'd be interested in the okay. answer. <laughs> we got another super chat. Yeah, from, I think it's from Neil himself. Ah, you better be ready, David. <laughs> okay, great sage Litwa. That's you, David. Um, was early Christianity competing with Eleusinist, uh, yeah, Eleusinist mysteries, Eleusinian, Eleusinian mysteries, ritual magic, and our salvation? Uh, Oh, he's abbreviating a lot here. The Nassin's uh, uh, preacher says, for the mystery is called Eleusin. Eleusin because we are spiritual flowing down from Adam above for the word Eleusisistai. I'm sorry. I murdered that one, but you see it <laughs> on the screen. Right. Well, thank you, Neil. Yes, this is a good example of the Nassin preacher's love of etymology because Eleusis is the name for a place. But yes, um, to a Greek speaker, that sounded like, um, as Neil says, you, you, it sounds like the normal word for to come and to go. So what, what the, the preacher does here is he say, you know, he's not in competition at all with Eleusis. He, like I said, unlike all other Christians of antiquity and even today, he is a complete paganophile that he he loves the pagan mysteries and and i use pagan here in in, in the kind of modern positive sense here. i'm not i'm not using it as in the kind of critical sense where you bad bad pagans no i'm using it in the sense that just like modern pagans today embrace their pagan heritage this is the nasing preacher's view he does not say, okay, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not a Hellene. You know, other other Christians like Tatian and Justin are saying exactly that. They're saying, I, I, I can't be a Christian and a Hellene. And, you know, Jerome has nightmares waking up because he memorized too much Cicero. So he's like, I, I shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening to me. But, you know, the Nazine preachers, yes, is, is saying very, very, very fascinatingly, he's the only Christian who's saying, Give me the Eleusinian mysteries. Give me the mysteries of Addis and Sibylle. Give me Adonis. I will embrace you and I will incorporate you 
into my mega myth, my monomyth. Now, from a modern perspective, this can also be viewed as is equally problematic because, you know, in our woke culture, this sounds a lot like cultural appropriation. And it is. It is. But <laughs> but it is the most genius and delightful cultural appropriation you will ever see. And it's something so fascinating because none of the other Christians are are doing it. The other Christians are literally People like Justin and, and Irenaeus are sweating in their beds and worried about the demons in the temples. And you've got to realize that in their time, you know, there were no churches. Christianity was just this weird, far out place, a weird, far out thing where you, you know, you met in your home and you had a meal and you gave each other a kiss. And But the main religion, you know, the main you know, you walk down Main Street and it's covered with smoke from burning altars and vast temples that are only husks, which we see today. And most Christians were th saying those are the houses of demons, but the Nassim preacher was saying, bring it on. You know, I want to be you and I want you to be me. And I want you to realize that you're really worshiping Jesus, whether or not you know it or not. <laughs> That's that's so weird, but that is what he's saying. That no, that, that brings a question to my mind that I had uh, for you, which is, Jesus, um, does he believe that the physical incarnation of Jesus that you know we all know and love and so forth was the only one, or does he think Jesus appeared back in history since he seems to think Christianity extends throughout time, right? Because all these things that you know the the Father and the Son have spread throughout all these signs and symbols. So is Jesus the only one, or were there other Jesus back in the past? Is there any way we have telling <laughs> from what he's from what we have? Well, he's not like a Sethian, whereas a Sethian might say that you know there was an incarnation of the Son of the Human in Seth, and maybe in Melchizedek, and in several others. You know, it's it's interesting, the Nassim preacher, I think, thinks more broadly and more precisely than that, because what he's trying to say is he's he's not only trying to culturally appropriate the Hebrew tradition, he's trying to say that Jesus really is manifest in all Greco-Roman cults, including Judaism, but also in the Addison Sibley cult and in the Zeus cult and in the Adonis cult and in the Osiris cult. So... I think for him, he does say Jesus is born of, of Mary, and so that's pretty traditional, or as he says, Mariam. Um, but he all, I think he thinks incarnationally on a much broader level, whereas I, I think he would be comfortable saying Osiris is an incarnation of the son of the human, and Adonis uh of the son of the human, and Addis especially is an incarnation of the son of the human. Hermes. And, stories, their, their stories, which are often traumatic and involve suffering, they're all pointing to the same reality. Okay. But as they talk about the logos too, he could be talking about them as yeah. the logos, including Jesus. Yeah. Oh, he's big on logos. Yeah. So, <laughs> and that's, that's why he's able to bring in Hermes because um, for us, you know, when we when we hear logos, Christians think of Jesus, but for in Greco-Roman antiquity, the logos was Hermes. And the Nassim preacher is very aware of that. And so he spends a long time exegeting uh, Homer's Odyssey, book 24, and trying to explain to you why Hermes there is really Jesus. And it's the famous scene of Hermes leading the suitors down into Hades, and he completely, you know, reverses all the meanings, which, you know, is, is fun. It must have been very frustrating to people who knew Homer very well. <laughs> but, you know, I, I often bring this up to Dennis McDonald and others, you know, who um, are very, very emphatic that the gospel writers and are, are using Homer to build their narratives. And I think it's a shame that people like Dennis McDonald they don't look to the Nassian preacher, who is virtually our only evidence of a Christian going to Homer seriously and building a vast cathedral 
out of Homer and seeing Homer as Christian truth and a Christian text, you know, that could help the case. But interestingly, the Nazarene preacher is ignored. There's so much ignorance in the world, you know, whereas the Nazarene preacher, if I had my way in early Christianity, every Christian, every Christian, and every spiritual person and every self-declaring Gnostic would know about the Nascenes and they would have, they would be memorizing bits and pieces of his sermon as if they were the spiritual gems, which they are. That's my vision for the world. I, you guys are the only people I'm who can have better reality. I'm on your side. That's for sure. Uh, for sure. Even though I've noticed in your Patreon, I think you've been cheating with Marcion for a little bit. I think the preacher <laughs> Nassines might have a word with you soon. But uh, but but uh, uh, but what does doesn't the great the great declaration also talk about Homer? And the the, the same preacher yeah. is familiar with it. Yeah. So actually, uh, the the Nassim preacher uses the great declaration. And um, so uh, just a preview for all your listeners, that is a Simonian text. And I've got my book on Simon coming out here soon as well. A full book on Simon of Samaria. Um, and yes, those that text also refers to the famous Holy Moly in Homer. And uh, so stay tuned for more on that. But it shows you that Christians of the late second century were reading Homer. So we can, we can use those texts to scientifically date when Christians were engaged in engaging with Homer and in what ways. Very exciting. Well, we can't wait for that one. Well, I know you're sick. And it is getting late. I guess, yeah, thank you, Anon. Thank you, Neil, Gnostic Informant. I hope I'm not doxing you and you're going to swap me or something. But thank you. I think Esoteric Teachings, thank you very much for your support. Well, let's promote some of David. Let me do a little share screen because this one I'm excited about. I am part of David's Patreon and I love it. Content all the time, papers, videos. Again, he's been he's been riffing on Marcion recently, and it's great because I'm getting new insights on Marcion, uh, and just really good content. So yeah, definitely support him on his Patreon. But you have a share screen. You have a course which I want to show the audience. Where is it? Window. There you go. Share. Can everybody see it? Yes. Tell us about this new course. Yeah, so I am committed to bringing the ancient Gnostic texts into the public light and the public domain. And so I have a course where I go through every single text in the Nakamati library, and I walk you through it. And I've introduced... Uh, part one of that course. So that goes through the first half of the Nakamati library. That course is now live. I'm still tinkering a little bit, but it is finished and you can go check that out. That will give you lifetime access to my intro. Uh, it's got about now five hours of video content. It's got a lot of my articles and writings in PDF and some other scholarly literature. And I've designed that just as I would teach any other undergraduate course. And uh, you'll get an opportunity to discuss with me anything related to Gnostic and Agamali literature. And you'll get lifetime opportunity to pose questions with regard to that topic to me. So check it out. I really appreciate all the interest and support. Yeah, it's it's an amazing deal. $49.99 for five hours. Whew. That's a good deal. And you're going to learn a lot, especially about these texts. And David always brings so much extra to these things. So, yeah, check it out. I will have this on the show notes. Uh, on the YouTube and on Rockfin, and I'll have it on the show notes in the audio version. So yeah, please support David and please support this show and all other independent podcasters and scholars 
that are making, as I call it, the virtual Alexandria, all this knowledge accessible, which is amazing, which is truly amazing, and so much to learn about these ancient heretics. So awesome. Well, we are at the end. I hope the chat wasn't too chatico. But Vance, thanks for being here. You took everything was good. Yeah, everything's good. Hello out there, everybody. Thank you all. And David, thank you. Um, you know, it was very interesting. I learned something. I always do. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. And as I say, you guys are, you know, with your base, you're the only way the Nassians can gain a voice in the world. And I really appreciate you guys and everyone who came along today. Uh, thank you so much. Um, it's been a rough 2023 for me. And I want to just say thanks to everybody who has sent words of support and for your kindness over the months and years. I really appreciate everybody and allowing um, scholars like me, the apostle of the heretics, to survive. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Oh, thank you for everything you do, David. And uh, yeah, we appreciate it. And yeah, things that can only get better. And hopefully this year will be better for some of us. Yeah, 2023 was not, it was okay for me. But yeah, definitely some challenges. But everything goes around and hopefully uh, Agathon Diamond will smile upon us. Right, David? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Maybe we need some serpents on our doorways. That'll fix everything. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, David, as always, it's great to have you on your show. Uh, I will certainly promote the Nassines and make them uh, bring them out into the world. And, yeah, look forward to your book on the Simonians and uh, the big rock star himself, the, the Mick Jagger and Jim Morrison of the Gnostics, uh, Simon himself. So thanks, as always, for being here. Thank you. And for everybody else, good night. Take care and enjoy the rest of your 2024 because it's just begun. Take care, yeah. everyone. Take care. Feel better, David.